Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode. This one is a little different. I was a guest on the podcast and YouTube show Axioms on Trial. I know the creator through TikTok, and he invited me on to discuss science and the obstacles that prevent logical thinking. But in this episode, we also tackle issues of morality, philosophy, conspiracy theories, how language is used, and more. You can watch the entire interview on my YouTube channel if you want, or just listen here. I want to shout out the channel again, Axioms on Trial, who you can also find on TikTok by typing cease to know, C-E-A-S-E-T-O-K-N-O-W, all one word. He didn't have to share the video with me, but he was gracious in doing so. With that being said, let's get started. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and want to support me, you can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says support the channel. Welcome everybody to episode 107 of Axioms on Trial. Tonight's guest is Planet Peterson. I'm going to bring him right on. Here we go. Hi. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Um, you're probably one of my favorite TikTok accounts that I ran into. Um, and so I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, yeah, so I guess just to start off, uh, if you wanted to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I'm a high school science teacher. That's my job. I've been doing that for eight and a half years now at this point. Um, and during the pandemic, I had to get very creative with teaching. So one project I started was I put all of my curriculum on YouTube. So I created like crash course styled uh, videos on all my curriculum because I, I knew the whole next school year would be 100% virtual. So I did that and I, I just started thinking about and exploring the idea of doing online education and YouTube didn't really grow and do much. And I started doing TikTok videos for fun and a couple of random videos just went viral. And then they TikTok added the live feature. So now I go on TikTok live and I just talk about and debate science with people uh, multiple times a week and yeah. make little standalone videos on things I think are cool that I just like randomly learn or whatever. Right. What are some of the common misconceptions that you run into? Because I, I, I've seen you engage with a lot of science deniers uh, or people who will talk about evolution or the Big Bang or flat Earth, things like that, and really have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as common misconceptions, I mean, uh, so for, we're sticking with flat Earth at first yeah yeah when we go there i mean they're sort of innumerable what the biggest problem and and this goes across like every type of topic i talk about where people just say you know they they don't think there's a slap but they think evolution isn't true or they think evolution is true but we um but uh but the but the universe is only a few thousand years old and earth is only a few thousand years old or, you know, stuff like that. And, and the flatter stuff, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the scientific process works, right? right? 
So like the most common thing I hear is, oh, you're telling us the Big Bang happened, huh? You know, that's just a theory, right? Yeah. I'm like, okay, so do you know what a theory is? Like a, a theory is basically the body of work that establishes that something is true. Now there's a, we can have a philosophical discussion of what does it mean for something to be true? Can you have absolute proof of anything? Yada, yada, yada. But that's like right out the gate. That's the number one barrier with, with all of these things. And it, it's kind of like their excuse to not believe it. Yeah. I think because yeah. they use this colloquial term theory and don't understand what the scientific process even is in the first place. Yeah, it's so frustrating. You know, really there's nothing that bothers me more, it triggers me more than hearing it's just a theory. It's like, <laughs> look, we live in 2022. Like, a quick Google search would tell you the difference between the word used colloquially and what it actually is in the context of science. And they just don't get it. It, it boggles my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it would be like somebody saying, I think LeBron's pretty good at pretty, uh, pretty good. And a person going, LeBron's just a, just a basketball player. Right. It's like, you know, there's a difference between the guy shooting on the hoop that doesn't even have a net at the park. Yeah. who is a professional athlete, right? There are, there are steps that have been taken for him to get to where he is. And it's the same thing with, uh, it's, it's the same thing with the scientific enterprise too. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, do, do you think the problem is a lack of science education? Like is a system failing us or is it, you know, dogmatism as well? Like they just already have their, their agenda and they're going to be closed off to whatever information can be brought to them. I think it's, well, it's both. Um, before we before we go to that, um, yeah. I, I want to stick on the original thing. So like some common misconceptions. So we, we can rattle through some of those. But um, like with the flat earth thing, um, oh, what are some common things? I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, the Big Bang, you know, they just keep changing that. At first, they said it was just like a big sound wave. But then we found out there's no sound in space. So that debunked it. I was like, this, this is not a single thing that you said there. The, <laughs> Remotely comes close to the idea of, of what it, of what it is. Right. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that. They, <clears throat> that's another common um, attack on scientific ideas is that they change over time, uh, which, which is really silly to me because, you know, if something if we learn new facts and then we admit that we were wrong in the past, um, somehow people say that that's like, that that's a sign that it's not a good enterprise right. or something like that, which is really silly to me because that's, to me, that's what I call accountability, right? We see this in the political sphere where people like, you know, somebody like Donald Trump has never, has been wrong uncountable number of times, but it's never admitted to being wrong about anything ever. Yeah. And like the media, they get things wrong, but, and obviously they, sometimes they don't admit it, but when they do, it's like they're disincentivized even to admit it because somehow that doesn't equal accountability. Somebody who's always wrong and never admits to being wrong is then viewed as being infallible. And that to me is, is very ridiculous and just kind of a dangerous way to think and see the world. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to jump, I uh, want to add to that is um, the fact that when people say science changes, they somehow think that when a theory evolves or we get new information and we update the theory, then no, we just throw the theory out the window altogether. Mm-hmm. That's not how science works. That's not how science evolves. So it's not the case that we just get rid of what we thought prior altogether and it's just gone. No, it's now we have a, a more um, a, um, complete and um, how would I say it? Uh, precise model of reality than what we had before. It's not that it's an yeah. entirely different thing now. Yes, I've had I've had conversations with people who insinuate that um, if there's a possibility of a one percent error, then that means that the theory is wrong. And it's like, okay, well, yes, but also very much no, because yeah. because it depends on on what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, so the one of the most common things that's getting thrown around is the uh, I haven't heard it that much in a while, but for like two months. Every single time I did a live, people are saying, did you hear the James Webb debunked the Big Bang? Yeah. I was like, no. So yeah. what you were saying, um, in science, when we learn new information, <clears throat> like like the Big Bang, we're learning things about the, the cosmology and the timeline of our universe, uh, which is new information. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's debunked anything we previously knew. It's just uncovered new information because... Right. The James Webb has higher resolution than the Hubble, so it can see farther in the past with more clarity. So it's it's seeing things that we didn't know were there. We weren't saying in the past, this is, we we know everything, and if anything changes, then it means we know nothing. That's, right. that's yeah. never been the case of what it is. Right. Um, so then people say like, oh, well, they found some galaxies, so that that that's a huge problem for the Big Bang. It's like, no. A, a problem with, for the Big Bang would be if the James Webb did not detect that we live in an expanding universe. Right. Um, I, I have a. What's really funny is every single person now that that tells me they don't think the Big Bang happened. I, I ask them if they agree we live in an expanding universe, and they, they pretty much always say yes. And then I let them know, okay, well, you think the Big Bang happened then? Right. No, I don't. <laughs> you do. You actually do. So yeah, when, that idea it, of learning new things means that we have overthrown our theories. No, our theories just get more and more refined. Right. Uh, so yeah, e- even if we somehow learned that the universe is twice as old as it is, I, that's not going to happen. But even if we did, so that wouldn't debunk the Big Bang like at all. Yeah, like, I often hear people talk about the Big Bang say it's like an explosion from nothing. It's like, no, that's not at all remotely what we're saying. It's just exhausting. Yes, that's that's another one um, that I get all the time. So you think the universe came from nothing? No, I don't. Um, it, the Big Bang doesn't make any claims. That's the that's the when it comes to the Big Bang, that's the number one thing. It says that the universe was created from nothing. No. Um, I don't really know where that comes from. I'm, I'm pretty sure it mostly comes from people that don't know what they're talking about, uh, making videos on YouTube and that's been going on for decades. Yeah. Uh, well, not decades, but, uh, for, for years, certainly, um, just saying things that aren't accurate about it in order to, in order to diminish the idea. 
Uh, you know, Lawrence Krauss wrote a book, A Universe from Nothing, and maybe that didn't really help either. I'm not yeah, totally sure. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of gives people um, ammunition to be like, see, scientists say that. It's like, well, Actually, I called him out on that because I, I, I was on a panel once with, with him, and I was like, you know, did you get a lot of uh, pushback on the whole nothingness thing from philosophers? Because I think you using that language is actually detrimental. Yeah. Uh, and he kind of acknowledged that sort of, but. Yeah, he's a, he is a militant atheist. And mm -hmm. so I, I think he was just, he had tunnel vision because he wanted to, he just wanted to prove that what other people say is nonsense. So he, he tried to figure out a way in which a universe can come from nothing. But I think that kind of violates the spirit of, of science in, in a way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Just real quick, uh, could you explain the difference? How do we actually know the universe is expanding? Sure. So uh, this has been known since like 1929. Georges Lemaitre, who is a, a physicist and a and a priest from Belgium, he found that there there's a Doppler shift in light in the farthest away galaxies. So. Uh, as the universe expands, the things that are farthest away from you are are moving away from you at the greatest rate, even though the whole system is expanding at a uniform rate. Still, with, with distance, the expansion increases. So um, light, when objects move at really incredible speeds, the light coming from them is stretched. So we call this red shifting because red light has longer wavelengths and lower energy than blue light. So the galaxies don't literally look red. It's just that the light that they emit is of a frequency that is lower energy than we know it would be if those objects were not in motion. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that explanation. Um, oh yeah. So we had talked. About, we want to talk about flat Earth a little bit because I, yeah, I, I noticed that getting off topic. Yeah. Um, so they they really have the the biggest problem with flat Earth theory is that it's well it's not a theory it's not a model and it, it can't make any predictions and it it contradicts itself because it it does special pleading for every single observation uh but that special pleading cannot unify anything together it, it doesn't work so in science it, an actual scientific theory what it does is it makes accurate predictions across a wide range of different phenomena and observations. So for example, the theory of plate tectonics uh, explains why volcanoes exist and why they're more common in the places that they are, why earthquakes happen, uh, why we have mid-ocean ridges, um, why mountain ranges exist specifically where they do. Uh, the phenomenon of the continental puzzle is, is fixed by that the distribution of fossils across different continents. Uh, there are particular patterns with that. Certain patterns in the geology of rock formation, you basically find the exact same rock formation split across oceans. That only makes sense if those land masses were connected at one point. So it, it unifies, um, and there, there are other things that I'm leaving out, but it unifies a huge range of things based on a, a, a very elegant, and simple and parsimonious explanation of heat convection in the mantle coming up to the surface and causing causing the lithosphere to break apart and move. It's it's simple and it explains so many things. 
But flat Earth theory does the opposite of that, because in order to explain why a sunset occurs, you have to interject a completely unique set of, I guess, certain circumstances isn't the right word, but you have, you have to interject a, a bunch of ridiculous, you have to say, well, light bends because we have refraction in the atmosphere and it, it refracts in this specific way. And that's why the sun appears to set. Um, and objects that are that far away just simply diminish from our point of view or they get bent out of the point of view. And then you ask them, aren't the stars farther away than the sun? Yes, but we can see the stars. Right. So, I mean, your model has contradicted itself right then and there. But then that does not explain what well, doesn't explain the stars. It doesn't explain the moon phases. It does not explain uh, equinoxes and solstices. It doesn't explain seasons. It can't do any of those things, but a we don't literally live in a heliocentric universe, but our solar system being heliocentric unifies all of those things, lunar cycles, the patterns we see with the, um, the planets, like why they do retrograde, why they move the way they do, um, the, the seasons on earth, the, uh, the, the, differentiating of how long a day is in the northern and southern hemisphere throughout the year, uh, lunar eclipses, solar eclipses, like all of those things are fixed by this right. very simple explanation or this very, I should say, very simple model. Now, um, there, I think there is a TikToker who I think her name is Molly. Have you interacted with her? She's a flat earther. Uh, does she have flat brunette? hair about i think so yeah i think i talked to her once yeah she was actually very polite she didn't really yeah. argue she just kind of asked questions that's questions yeah um she often comes up with videos saying how you know why you know the earth is flat and the big bang is not real and like all this yeah. complete nonsense um and yeah uh, if you ever uh engage with her let me know because i'd like to watch that conversation oh sure um, um what other kinds of flatter things? Um, so the big problem is th they have no model that can unify more than one phenomenon. Um, but also it's it's unscientific because it can't make predictions. It really only makes like claims and the, the claims are like special pleading yeah. claims. So like, for example, why do things fall? Because of density and buoyancy. It's like, well, okay. In the formula for buoyancy is G. The acceleration of gravity right, right. there so i mean that completely falls apart but there are all kinds of uh the reason i brought this up is something you said just made me think about this flat earthers mostly critique the globe model but they don't support their own model i mean not not really not not in any real way because because you can't because there are no experiments that you can do that will consistently um support the idea that earth is flat so like for example if materials sort themselves out by by density then if i take a closed container with water and air in it and i put it into free fall um then the water should always stay on bottom and the air should stay on top but it doesn't because when you remove the force which is the acceleration of gravity acting on it then it's in a weightless environment and density and buoyancy becomes irrelevant at that point what do you think motivates somebody to hold such ridiculous ideas? Is it just, I mean, I can't understand why people are religious, even though I've never been, but to be a flat earther, it, 
I just can't wrap my head around it. It's just a way to feel like you're in the know, a way to feel special. Like, what is it? That, so that's one of the things where I'm like, is that like, is that pretty much what's going on here? Because like the idea that some guy named Kyle, who who lives in Atlantic City, discovered some, knows something that only a, a tiny fraction of the population knows, despite having done no scientific investigations or research on their own and has uncovered this massive cabal um it's just i mean that's hilariously improbable you know so i don't know if there's like this maybe there's some that's that could be part of it for a lot of them like i i've done something important (laughs) like like or i don't know maybe that has something to do with it but I think it comes from, I think thinking the earth comes uh, is flat, mostly just comes from a fundamental lack of trust in institutions. Now we see that manifesting itself in all kinds of different ways. Um, the the anti-vaccination movement is probably, I, I think a lot of it has to do with that. Um, that really started like in the early 2000s, you know, before before anyone was really on the internet doing a whole lot, except for sending emails. Um, um, I mean, you know, mistrust in like governments and institutions is just, it's, that's always, not always, but that, that's been a big thing for a really long time. So we've all heard the conspiracies like about George Soros or 9-11 or, you know, the moon landing or, you know, whatever else. So. I don't know specifically where the flat earth thing came from. I don't, I don't know what started to inspire it. I don't know what inspired like the moon landing is fake either. Like what would, like, is there what a would the benefit that be pointed to for that? Um, that's another weird one where it just kind of gained popularity and then, and then just started to explode. I think it's one thing to be skeptical of government. I think that's, that that's a good thing. Yeah. But when that, becomes conspiracy theories where now anything that you hear you're just going to call fake news because you, it doesn't fit your you know your agenda and, and then now you're not trusting the government fine but now you're trusting random person on the internet who was making up connections that make no sense um it, it's just yeah it's terrible so i was i i've been thinking about conspiracy theories uh more than I more than I usually do, which is to say more often than never. Yeah. Um, and not not the theories themselves, but like why people believe in them. So <clears throat> I have a couple different perspectives on this. So we know that conspiracies do happen, mm-hmm. right? Like like some really messed up ones and some never happened but were planned. Um, like we know that that's happening. The United States government has carried some out and there have been I mean, like you could call you could call Enron a conspiracy, I guess, right. in a way, um, and and some other things. So it happens like in in business, obviously. Normally, we call that like collusion or whatever, um, and in government too. So at least, like for sure, some conspiracies are true, but the problem is we don't know which ones are true. And what the conspiracy theorist seems to do in my mind is they just kind of throw in with all of them. 
because any of them could be true, there's sort of a supporter of all of them, which in a way kind of makes sense. But if you think about it rationally, it's, it's not a very economic belief system. What I mean by that is, um, let's say that of all, let's just take like the hundred top conspiracies. Let's say that, uh, 49 of them are are true, which is way too big of a number. But let's just say that it is. Let's say 49 of them are true and 51 of them are false. Uh, me, the skeptic, it is more like economically, I'm better off doubting every single one of them. Because on average, I'll be right more often than you are. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, getting back to the point, some of those conspiracies are true. So there's no problem really in, in in thinking that some of those conspiracies can be true. And I think it would, it would actually sort of be irresponsible to say, I mean, this is like, if you just say my government can never do anything wrong. Well, that kind of sounds like uh, Soviet Russia or yeah, that's, that's like that. That's not a healthy attitude to have. Right. Um, but there's a, there's like a, the, throwing yourself in with all of them just doesn't really make a lot of of sense to me. So I I am skeptical skeptical about all of them. And people are like, you take the fun out of everything because you don't think aliens even could be real or you know blah blah blah. And I'm like, yeah, but like if we actually think about this economically, um, me being skeptical about all of them, it may make me look like a pompous ass sometimes. It may make me it may make me look like a know it all. Uh, even though I don't literally know, but on average, I'll be right more often. And that's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that, uh, no, saying that it's something is unlikely doesn't mean that we're claiming to know for certain that these things aren't true. It's what matters is what actual evidence can you provide to support these claims? I'm not like, I'm going to be skeptical of everything, the government and the claims that some random people are, are making for their own psychological issues. Like, yeah. But, um, uh, one thing I got today that was really exhausting was somebody saying that the the Big Bang Theory violates the laws of physics. And nope. it's, it's such a dumb, like... The, the laws of physics constructed the Big Bang Theory. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I get so tired and demoralized sometimes when, when I see people make these kind of claims. But that's why I'm doing what we're doing now, right? Like, cause I, I want to spread awareness for, for people and, and science education and things of that nature. Um, yeah, I guess you know, maybe my, my oh, journey talk kind of transformed and I didn't, I didn't really notice that. Well, I made a conscious effort to do this, but, um, a, a long time ago, but I kind of forgot that I did it. So my, my TikTok channel, I, I would describe it as being educational and entertaining at the same time. But it started what I what I had in mind was I would literally just teach people random facts, you know, and maybe I would do like a series where I teach them about like I take something in science and like do like 10 videos explaining it or something like that. But what it's actually turned into is I, I do still think I'm educating people, but what I'm what I'm hoping they're actually learning is how to think, not what yeah, the facts yeah necessarily right, right. we have to use facts definitely but it's it's become more of a a, a pro and it, this is hard to do it's hard for me to do and I, I don't i'm not successful at it all the time 
but it's just sort of like, well, let's compare ideas and think about which one makes the most sense. Uh, if there are contradictions within the statement, if it if it reflects reality at all, if it <clears throat> like uh, how was the argument constructed, and and so on. No, yeah, and I think that's something so important that I think is lacking in schools. It's yes, you no, know, not just teaching facts, but teaching how to think, you yes. know, how to apply critical thinking. And like, I, I believe that philosophy should be taught, you know, very young. Um, uh, as far as I think it should have been taught in high school. It's not, it shouldn't be just be an elective in college. It should be a mandatory class to take in high school, maybe even before that. Yeah. Um, I. So I am a teacher. I've thought about this um, for for a while. I've, I've thought you should there should just be a class in like there should be a class called critical thinking yeah. and you should have to take it in middle school. Yeah, I, I was thinking. But lately I and I, I just wonder, I, I obviously don't know, but I wonder, you know, there 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 is a class called critical thinking or it's kind of supposed to be and you may think this is weird but it, it's called english now that might sound weird but, no, I get where you're from, yeah. but the, my my justification for that is you know the average american adult reads at like a seventh grade level or an eighth grade level so you know what you're supposed to do in english is you know dissect a story or a piece of it it could be fictional or non-fictional whatever you're supposed to dissect it and like try to understand what were what were the author's intentions and goals. Uh, what is the although the person is not mentioned in this sentence, who is this sentence about? You know those connections because I listened to I substituted in a in a class and they were reading The Great Gatsby and they were going over the analysis questions and they're like, who was Jay talking about in in that paragraph? And they disagreed. Some of them are like, no, it's it's the girl, and others are like, well, no, I thought it was I thought it was the other guy. So I I wonder if sort of a a lack of um not not fluency, I don't know what the word my my brain is failing me right now, but I just wonder if sort of a, a lack of 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 understanding of those kinds of things, like like in our English literacy, is I wonder if we promoted that, if that would fix a huge chunk of the problem. That's, I, I think that's, it would. That's my big wonder there. I'm not really sure. I, I think it would. Uh, and I think, you know, it shouldn't be just one class. Like I, I think so. I just saw it some in, in the comments. Uh, Bone says, reason, logic, and critical thinking should be mandatory teaching for all parents before each child. Uh, the knowledge must be accessible to the child so early as possible. Like I think that, um, like I said, I think philosophy should be introduced uh, as early as middle school or at least you know early high school, um, because th this is where we're at now, where, where people can't rationally navigate the, the world or concepts. I mean, the amount of times yeah. I get people in my on my lives telling me, "Well, prove that God isn't real." Or, or prove that this is yeah, like, a, a logical impossibility. <laughs> yeah, it's like understand what the burden of proof is. Like I would never claim to be able to do that. That it's just exhausting. That yeah, that's a 
that's a common thing I see too. Um, people just don't understand. Like I'll, I'll see, there, there's this guy who does, he does lives all the time and uh, his background, one of the things says prove God doesn't exist. And I've never talked to the guy, but I've tried to. Um, his, his guest box is usually pretty full. He skipped over me once I waited so long and he just skipped me. I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. But like, I was just going to say like, you know, you he's, he's articulate and he, sound, he seems like an intelligent person. So I really, why would you even put that in there? Uh, unless you don't understand it, because if you do understand it, then what you're doing is like that statement or that challenge is the intellectual equivalent of like a rigged carnival ride. Like it's, it, it's unassailable, but that doesn't mean that you're right because a, a, an idea is not assumed to be true until proven false. That's, that's not how it works. Right. Um, that used to be sort of the attitude that we had until the scientific revolution, because what distinguishes science from, from other disciplines is the act of actually testing out your claim, right? Um, you've maybe heard people say that science is confirmation bias. Yeah. But, you know, when, if you have a hypothesis and then the, the scientific method demonstrates some, some credibility to it, that's not confirmation bias because you went out and, and tested your claim. Confirmation bias is when you data mine, don't, you don't test your claim, but you just data mine for data that supports your claim. Whereas in the scientific method, you actually produce the data and you don't know what the data is going to be. Now, errors can happen in science, but it's always the scientific method itself that corrects those errors too. So, Right, 100%. Yeah, it's, uh, which actually kind of brings me to something I wanted to discuss with you, which for me is like one of my biggest triggers is presuppositionalism. Um, it drives me crazy. I, I think it's the bottom of the barrel. What's that? Yeah, it's such bullshit. And so when they, when, when people say, well, you're using the laws of logic or using logic to, um, uh, to justify logic, uh, somehow yeah. that's a problem. Um, and to me, it's like, I can recognize, like, even when, as far as, let, let's talk about the, the senses for a second. Like, yes, my senses can be flawed, but I come to recognize those flaws still through my senses. Yeah. This doesn't, shouldn't lead anybody to think that we're somehow incapable of producing truth in certain contexts, just because there are limitations to our senses. And and with the presup argument, to me, it's, you know, I don't think it's, a presupposition to one if I if I want to see if a pen works, I pick up the pen and I and I try to write with it. I'm not presupposing that the pen is going to work. I'm yeah. observing the fact that it works. Yeah, um, I've heard them say like you know the laws of logic don't prove that they will be true in the future, or something like that. Um, so you you have to presume that the laws of logic are absolute, and therefore they could only come from an intelligent mind or something like that. To me, presuppositionalism is is exhausting. Um, and it's also, it's very, it's hard to discuss and debate, but like what, this is just kind of funny, but what I think presuppositionalism is, 
is just taking the limitations of English, of the English, of the way we use language, doesn't have to be English. It's just taking the limitations of the way we use language and the way we interact with the world and using it to basically generate uh, errors. Or like, um, like if language is a code, it's just using the code in a way that produces errors. It's like, you know, sometimes we do get stuck in places, but that's just the limitations of language. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't prove, therefore, the Christian God is real or anything like that. But especially, yeah, especially because the, the, this, the same claim that all of this comes from God, you're only arriving at using the language that you're trying to justify in the first yeah. place. Yeah, and so that's your supposition, but they, they assert that their presupposition is the only like logical one or whatever because it has to presuppose logic or something like they tell us you can't presuppose logic and so i had a discussion with uh it was with several people and a presuppositionalist and we kept telling them no actually we don't presuppose logic and then they go well that's absurd like then you're just admitting like i was like no 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 because if i presupposed the logic if i if i said logic is absolute and I constructed a logical argument, then wouldn't I just have the right then to therefore claim that my argument is true because it's logical? You know, we don't assume that, which is why we go out and we test things, you know, because we, we could be wrong, like the way we've constructed the, the thought may be wrong or some part of the methodology may be incorrect. And they didn't really seem to understand that counter argument. But like, for me, it's like, okay, we can construct, I'm not very good with philosophical terminology, so <clears throat> you'll probably correct me here, but we can create like logical arguments that are sound, but not valid, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So the only way, like if it's logically or, sound. Yeah, go ahead. If it's logically sound, then how do we determine whether or not it's true? Like if I say all elephants are named Bob, uh, no, would be it would be a better one. Um, all elephants have umbrellas. Bob is an elephant, therefore Bob has an umbrella. So to me, the only way to validate that is not is not with presuppositionalism, but by to like actually test the claim. You know, so then like the presupposition of logic, I think, falls apart as the explanation for how would we how we actually would determine what is and what isn't true. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's a misuse or a misunderstanding of how language operates and, and uh, kind of a semantics game that they're engaging in. Um, I don't think that we presuppose logic at all. I think we simply observe that these tools seem to work in, in the limited space in which we use them. Um, yeah. uh, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is... What are some of the misconceptions that you've heard about evolution? One thing that I always hear is, oh, microevolution is true, but macroevolution isn't, which is absurd because macroevolution is what happens and microevolution is the case. Uh, that's one I've heard, but I don't know if you've heard of other ones. Oh, yeah. I, I hear that one all the time. That one, to me, um, I I had a conversation with somebody about that that exact thing a couple of days ago and I walked them through this. I was like, okay, um, let's say that, like, will you admit that micro mutations or micro evolution happens, right? Okay, well, so a 
a, a micro evolution or a micro mutation happens within a population. Does that micro mutation or evolution ever go away? No, like it stays there. Okay, well then in the next generation or five generations later, whatever, in whatever amount of time uh, the initial micro mutation or whatever you said occurred, um, then in the next time interval, more of them would occur, different ones. So now we have the original one and new ones. And he's like, yeah, okay. That's just going to keep happening. So eventually, if, if you add up a bunch of micro evolutions or micro mutations uh, across huge numbers of generations, then what you have at the end of that process is macro evolution. That's exactly what would happen. I always use language as my example. There was a time when nobody on the planet spoke English but every single person speaks the same language that their parents spoke, unless they're born deaf or something like that, right? Hmm. So every single person speaks the same language that their parents spoke. However, out of that process, completely new languages evolve, not overnight. Macro, what they, what they, I don't know what they mean by macroevolution doesn't happen. I'm pretty sure they have it in their minds that, because a lot of them say, you can't, a dog can't give birth to a cat. Yeah. I agree. Scientists agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that is stupid. But what isn't stupid is the idea that, although it seems kind of absurd, every organism is the same species as its parents was. Um, just like every language spoken is the same language as the parents spoke. Yet, over time, new species can develop. Not overnight. Not in one generation. And that's not how language evolves either. If you would go backwards in time in 10 year intervals, you'd, you'd be able to talk to everybody up to a certain point uh, where you'd be like, no, I can't communicate with these people at all. Their version of English is so different that it's impossible, right? They, but it's, yeah. it's still English. They, yeah. they also happen to, to think that they talk about evolution like it's Pokemon. You know, like they don't recognize how it actually works. They have this very confused understanding of, of what's going on. Um, I, I wanted to read you this, this question. Um, can Planet Peterson tell us a bit about what science subjects he teaches and what excites students? I I have taught pretty much everything. I, I currently teach chemistry and physics, which are not my fortes, phys, physics especially. I, I've actually... I've actually gotten pretty uh, good with chemistry. What I'm awful at is uh, conversion factors. I, I do it in a different way because I, I don't have a strong enough like mathematics background uh, for that kind of thing. Just the logic of how to do it doesn't work for me. I do it in my own kind of, I have my own methodology, which, which works well for me. But uh, my degree is in, well, my undergraduate degree is in biology. And then I have a master's just in, in teaching, in curriculum instruction and educational technology. Um, I started off my career teaching biology and earth science, which includes astronomy too, and anatomy and physiology. So the, the earth and space science stuff, I just had to throw myself into that. Um, but um, I, I think I have a, a really deep understanding. You have to take these, you have to take tests to uh, earn a credential to teach a high school subject. And there's specific, yep. there isn't a general science test that you have to pass. 
you have to take a biology specific test. And it's it's pretty similar to when I when I took it, it reminded me a lot of my exit exam for undergrad. It wasn't as rigorous, but it was close to that. Um, and then I had to take one for earth science and it, it, it was sort of similar, I thought. So, um, and I, I obviously, I passed that. So I like to think that I have at least a little bit of a expertise in, in that. Um, and then I teach chemistry and physics and I've taught like a physical science type of class and then anatomy physiology. And, and is there anything specific that your students tend to enjoy or be drawn to more than others? In terms of just like the raw, like if I wrote on the board what we're going to do today, um, astronomy by far is probably the number one thing. Um, evolution is, I think they just don't really know what to expect. Um, but I, they enjoy, that is, I enjoy teaching astronomy and evolution more than any other topic. Um, and I, I, I ask my student, I do like surveys, like at the end of certain units, how it went. And the end of the evolution unit is always like, I learned so much. I, it, it was insane. I do little things on paleontology too. So like fossils and dinosaurs and stuff that gets them excited. Um, but they just, they, I mean, they mostly I get asked several times a week, are we doing a lab today? That's the number one thing because that's science. It's kind of frustrating as a teacher. Like we don't do a lot of science. We do mostly a lot of just like learning facts. I mean, shop class is more scientific than, than science class is most of the time. Right. Um, you, you mentioned language earlier and I, and I wanted to ask you, um, cause I have, I have a close friend of mine who I was talking to about this and, and she was saying that, well, tell me if you agree with this, um, is language, the, the success of language, is it based on the capacity to actually understand the meaning meant or is there such a thing as like wrong, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, you know, like the structure of the sentences um, th that, uh, grammar, right? So if we're yeah. applying grammar that like the so-called rules, if somebody breaks those rules and yet the meaning is still communicated, have they done something wrong there? What do you mean by wrong? That's that's the thing, right? Like a lot of people tend to uh, be very, um, uh, how would I say it? Very anal about um grammar or like if if you use the wrong uh tense in the sentence or the wrong or the wrong uh that somehow it's something to be like judgmental about or uh it, it's it's assumption that there are that these grammatical rules like actually exist as opposed to it just developed how it's developed but really the, what, what matters is whether or not the meaning of the message sure. gets across. Um, and I, I think that it's more about the meaning getting across than if we use all the right tenses in the right places and the right grammar, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I mean, different, I mean, different languages have different grammatical structures. Like um, this is, I'm not gonna be able to remember. I, I, I'm fascinated 
by language. I, I've read some books that talk, I've never read a book about language, but many books I've read have chapters about it. And it's fascinating because like um, um, Hebrew, for example, does not have plural perfect in it. So like the way a sentence is constructed, I don't remember a hundred percent what this means, but like you, there's only like in English, there's many ways to let somebody know that you're speaking in past tense, but in Hebrew, it can only be done like in a certain way. I, I, I think that's kind of what that refers to. And I may be severely wrong. I, I'm not, I don't remember a hundred percent, but something like that. But uh, languages have different grammatical uh, rules, but so if languages change over time, then like to, to say it's wrong, I mean, I guess I would agree with you. It, it matters that the meaning and the message was made, right? So like it, sure. it could evolve to a point where the language is used in a different, in a different way. I can't really think of an example of that off the top of my head. I mean, maybe at one point English did not contain any like 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 the possessive form maybe was never ever constructed with apostrophe s for example and now it is um you know silly stuff like that there is i mean there appears to be some sort of universality in language this is why noam chomsky got so famous in the first place because mm -hmm. he discovered the underlying mechanism of universal grammar which i don't i i couldn't describe it to you here and now um, I just know that that's what it's called, and that's yeah. very well known for. Uh, there is a genetic component to it. The FOXP2 gene is the is the strongest link to to language, genetic link to language that we've ever found. There have been some fascinating cases where um, there's a really great book about human evolution is called Before the Dawn, and in that book, the author talks about there's this. Uh, there's this girl who was just kept in a basement her entire life and never spoken to. And she escaped when she was a teenager. I don't remember exactly how old. And she never, ever learned how to speak a language. It was impossible. So there's there's some sort of hard wiring process that has to take place. We call this, uh, oh shoot, what's it called? There's a developmental term for this, um, a critical period uh, where if it's not imprinted then it probably can't ever be imprinted so now, in, in those cases were they still the, the the person who couldn't learn the language she could say words but she couldn't do grammar let's let's say it that way right like if, and i'm not i'm not sure it didn't go into very much detail but i'm not sure if she could understand language either like she could have which would like in a way mean she had like aphasia like, I don't know if she could answer questions either. Cause like she could, again, the book didn't go into very much detail, but it said like the best she ever learned to do was act. She would sometimes accidentally say things like juice I want, you know, or something incredibly simple like that. But she just never gained the ability to uh, use grammar. Let's say it that way. She could talk like chimpanzees can't, can't say words. There's a, there actually was a couple, I think they were American. They raised a chimpanzee for like eight years and every single day they, they tried to, they, they gave it lessons in speaking and it never developed the ability to say even one single word. One, one thing I want to ask you, and this is more on the philosophical side of things, 
Um, you know, because I often hear from people saying, you know, that we can't derive an ought from an is, that you have the science over here and you have philosophy over there and, and there you can't really have a overlap, especially in the moral sphere. Right. <clears throat> I Now, I, I don't know what your perspective on that is. Um, I disagree with that. Um, so I, I'm a moral realist. So I, I think I believe in objective moral truth and I think that science is a tool that can help us actually reach those truths. And I was wondering, you have, you know, with your background in science, what your perspective on that is? Um, so I think morality is invented, but it can be based in, in real things. Like if it's like, it can be based in logic. And I guess I would say logic maybe is an invention too, but like data isn't fake. You know, like if we want, if we wanted to say like, like we have to decide what our goals and objectives are. Like if we if we want to diminish suffering in the world, then we then how should we go about doing that? Should we should we appeal to divine intervention to do it? Should we be utilitarian about it or whatever? So, you know, for me, it'd be like, well, for example, like with a uh, smoking. So you'll. Uh, <clears throat> You'll notice that you've never seen an advertisement for smoking as because it's illegal. It it didn't used to be. And then the like in 1990, I think it was, we decided uh, Congress passed a law that you can't advertise for cigarettes in, in in video or radio or or print. You can you can print a picture of like your brand, but you can't like display people smoking or anything like that, right? So we we decided what to do based on the metric of reducing uh death from from cancer and it worked right so like it was what we decided to do was based in something real like the data was really there but we made up what our objectives were but the objective is still based in something tangible so it's real in that sense um the way i compare this is usually when i i haven't had a discussion morals in a really long time, but I usually compare it with language again, like I do with, with evolution. Uh, there's th these words that you and I are speaking are completely made up. They're not real, but they do represent real things. Um, and even if the language is made up, there is a part of it that's real. And that's the grammar that we were just talking about. Because if I were to say these exact words, but in a random order, you couldn't understand what I'm saying um, unless you unless I wrote them out and then you jumbled them and then you pieced them together. But they're, you know, you could theoretically rearrange those in ways to make them have other meanings too. So the meaning wouldn't be there. That's only possible with grammar. And grammar is sort of like an I don't know if it's an emergent feature of language or or whatever, but the language isn't real, but the grammar is right because if it wasn't, um, if it wasn't, then I could just say random words in random sequences, and it would have it would it it would have the same value then, but it doesn't. Like clearly, we, we have to use it in a specific way, and that's as real as as anything else can be, if you ask me. I'm not sure that I agree with the realness of of grammar. I think. 
it's for me the realness comes from what the kind of the dead the dead word or the symbol is reference uh, referencing um i think it's like i was saying before i i don't think the language possesses correctness in that kind of sense um but it, it's more in what's contained in in the expression that we can come to understanding with and like yes obviously it has to be expressed in a way that we can understand each other um but i'm trying to think of how to express this uh, i think um my perspective on morality is that it's not made up um i think are, are you familiar with the term phenomenology uh i don't think so it's just a fancy word for experience um just like consciousness right. what it, and and my argument is that when we look at the the nature of our mind we discover that there are universals across the board from from individual to individual mm -hmm. and so when we use words like good and evil or right and wrong we're applying descriptors to what kind of behaviors lead us to different phenomenological states so certain yeah. actions will lead us to well-being certain actions will lead us to suffer and to ask is well-being good is to really miss what language is doing when we're using these words it well-being is synonymous with with goodness in this sense yeah it can only be that it can only be that and, yeah. and people cr critics of my approach seem to seem to suggest that i'm somehow smuggling in a presupposition of goodness to begin with when for me it's the opposite i'm recognizing that there are these differences and that we intrinsically by virtue of what, how we're structured and what the experiences entail we value certain states over others and that this is not going to be arbitrary if we have a shared nature of the kind i'm describing and so um that's kind of where where i'm at with with, with you know and in, in that sense when people say well you can't derive an ought from an is oughts are always concerned with goals you don't just linguistically we don't talk about oughts if we're not talking about a goal in mind and so it doesn't make any sense it, Oughts are always concerned with is because we have to look at what are the facts that we can learn to then get to that goal, and and I want to say that those goals are not arbitrary, that the goal of well-being is intrinsic in what we are, um, and so when we're talking about morality, that's all we're, we can really be uh, referring to. Sure. So I guess like the, the the simplest way I would put this is. I don't, I don't think you can derive an ought from an is, but like science is not a methodology. Science doesn't tell us what we should do, just like what we can do. And it, it can tell us the best way to do something. And by best, I don't mean like more, the most morally good way to do something, but like the most efficient way to do it or the most cost-effective way to do it or the like, you know, whatever, just like, you have your metrics for how you want to do it. Um, so what was I going to say? 
I had something, but so I don't, I think you have to make up what the, what your goals are going to be in the end and what, like, like if we want to like with the cancer thing, minimize it or whatever. So while I do think that you, you can't use science to tell you what you should do or, you know, whatever, um, with the goal in mind, I think a scientific approach is the best way to go about doing it. Yeah, of course. Well, so yeah. that's kind of what I was trying to say, where it's still based in things that, it, like, you're like, well, that's just, it's still made up. It's like, well, but the data isn't, right? Like, the objective we have in mind is a, is a real thing, right? So. I, but I would push back on the idea that the goal the, is made up, because I think that that goal doesn't come from thin air. I think that goal is derived from what the nature of our mind is and what the nature of our experience is. That we, The values we arrive at are grounded in our phenomenology. They're not arbitrary. Oh, we just happen to decide that we want to move towards well-being. No, yeah. there are reasons, and in in, in science can help us discover those reasons and then help us discover how to get to those goals. Um, so I guess that, that's how I approach it. I guess the only the only thing I could say, like as like a pushback, maybe is, but they're not absolute, and and I feel like maybe there has to be like an absoluteness to this or whatever. Because like if you if you describe, you know, what it is that humans do, like humans are interested in you know self preservation, and and so on and so on. Like if we can say that there is something real and and tangible to it. Um, so like, that's, for example, why psychopathy exists, because it's like literally abnormal, right? But I, I guess in a way, if the abnormal exists, then that's sort of like, like that proves that there is, a, there is a range. Um, but you know, the extremes aren't necessarily, you know, what we're looking for. But here's what's absolute though, because rationalize your way back to, uh, what it is, your, your goal your goal in mind or something like that. But I, I think even with those examples with the psychopaths or, 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 and whatnot, um, I think my position will be defeated if the behavior of the psychopath or the person who uh, decides to harm others, if through harming others, they could reach the same type of state of well-being as somebody who chooses to instead meditate on empathy, well, then my position would be defeated because it would actually be no uh, uh, concrete way of, of uh, navigating your behavior that could lead to these different states. But the psychopath doesn't actually have an alternative way of reaching well-being. In fact, they're incapable of having access to those experiences. So I don't see that as a defeater for my position any more than there being a variety of foods doesn't mean that there's an objective difference between food and poison. You're still gonna get those that 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 um I guess the argument I'm making is that if everybody had the um access to the full range of, of potential experience that we could have, we would necessarily value experiences of well-being. It, it would be existentially impossible from my perspective for somebody to know what it's like to feel the most joy you can and choose to feel the worst suffering you could. It wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I just want, I was curious to, to hear what your perspective of that was. And, um, you know, uh, like I said, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, sharing your, your background and, and your knowledge with us.
um, I don't know how, how how good are you on time? Usually we do this for about like an hour, hour or so. I'm I'm, I'm good. If you if you got more questions, I have time. Sure. Um, does anybody in the audience have any questions that you want to ask us? Um, I guess one thing I could ask you is because I, I love talking about physics, even though most of it goes over my head. Um, and I think the one one uh, specific aspect of physics that I really struggle with is time. Um, I can't wrap my head around the nature of time. And it seems to me that our intuitions about time are illusory. That's not to say that time itself isn't a thing, but it seems to be far, it seems to be very uh, ambiguous what that actually is. Um, and so you've come to me for the answer. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you anything to, to help give you peace of mind. I mean, so what we, well, so like time appears to be part of, like we have, it's called space time because it's literally part of the quote unquote fabric of the universe, or at least this is what the experts tell us, right? I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to uh, put it any, any better than, I don't, I don't know how to describe that any, any farther for you, I guess. Mm -hmm. But like, it, is time something that we can pull apart and describe it as its own thing? Well, maybe not. I mean, it seems like it because there's this concept of what we call the arrow in time, which is like basically the fact that entropy always increases, right? Like we, we can't run the arrow of time as they call it backwards. Sean Carroll talks a lot about the arrow of time mm -hmm. um, and rather than misrepresenting his views, I'm just going to refer you to check out anything he's sure, yeah. written or produced on online about that. But, you know, like you can't describe magnetism completely separately from the from the phenomenon of electromagnetism, right? Mm -hmm. um, or at least that's how I understand it, because electromagnetism is actually this universal force, right? So we, we can't, you can't create something that is magnetic, but is has no electric properties, I, I guess. Although that's how, like we think of, you know, a wire carries electricity, not magnetism. I was like, well, that's how we understand it, but in, in a way, like at, at the fundamental level, that's actually incorrect. And I'm not, I'm not a physicist, so I wouldn't be able to give you a better example, but like we, like we know it's called the electromagnetic uh, field or whatever. So it interacts with both. And we use, we use magnets to make electricity and, you know, vice versa. We can turn magnets on and off using electricity, right? Cause, right. cause they're the same thing. And space and time apparently is the same kind of thing too. So I don't know, maybe the dissatisfaction just lies in, maybe our question is just grammatically problematic. Yeah. Kind of like when people say like, when people ask me, what happened before the Big Bang? I don't know. You know, that's not an answer. I was like, I, I know it's not an answer. I know it's not satisfying, but perhaps it's just, perhaps that question just isn't any good. But I think it's okay to say, I don't know. I think that is the honest, to, to say, I don't know is the honest answer in certain yeah. contexts. Yeah. Um, here's some questions for you. Uh, where is it? But one other one, I'll look for one. And I'll just say like one other thing about time. Um, I've, I've had people give this, uh, they say like, uh, 
they say Genesis is the uh, is an explanation of the Big Bang because in the beginning you have uh, or how do I say it? in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right so they say we have um, time space and and matter right there it's like okay but you failed to describe an a uh, universe that contains energy in it right so like what would a universe look like with no energy well it could have space and matter um but if there's no energy then none of that matter can interact uh and nothing could ever move so this would be a universe that doesn't have energy but then the concept of time would be completely irrelevant either because the only notion in which time we understand time exists is the experience of things change excuse me mm -hmm. i pick up uh, changing, right? So I had a uh, this one. I have a video of this. I think on my YouTube channel, um, this guy was adamant that time does not exist, and so I kept asking him, like, okay, describe to me the difference between an object, two objects. They're both going to go to right here. Describe to me the difference in how those objects did that task. And he said. Uh, well, it took longer or, or one took more time, <laughs> but time doesn't um, exist. And it's, it's a wild conversation. Muslims do the same thing where they, they claim the Quran predicted the big bang and it's just a word game. Yeah. yeah it's just, so, it's, a, um, ask Peterson if he will do the cricket noises, noises for me. Oh yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's the cricket. Uh, what is the guest most excited for in the new year? Um, I'm not aware of anything that's supposed to happen, uh, in 2023 in terms of like big new, like science things, or even, man, you know, when I was younger, I used to obsess about, um, cars. Like I used to watch, I don't know if you ever watched Top Gear, but that was my favorite show by far. And I would always like look forward to, you know, Ferrari's next crazy car that's getting unveiled next year. I don't, I don't keep track of any of that crap anymore at all. Um, with science, I mean, we had, we had Artemis and James Webb this year. And yeah. last year we had oper or not opportunity, but, um, perseverance on, on Mars for 2023 off the top of my head. I, I actually, I can't think of anything. Um, that's such a good question. Me personally, I, I don't really know. I'm going to yeah. probably be coaching track and field after a three-year oh. hiatus. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I don't have any big like projects that are up and coming or anything. Um, this is such a disappointing answer. I'm really sorry. It no, actually kind of makes me feel <laughs> like, like, am I doing anything? <laughs> I think yeah. I am, but um. man, I'm like, there's nothing specific that I'm, that I'm, really they can think of them really looking forward to i bet i'll think of something after this yeah that's always how it goes uh, do you subscribe to any defined moral framework uh no so like when we were talking about uh like you're a moral realist um i don't know if moral facts exist i i'm actually kind of i, I just don't really have a position on it but i, I lean towards no my, my philosophy and my attitude is we still have to decide what we're going to do, but we can base that in things that actually are objectively true that can be measured. So without going into all that again, that's sure. basically it. 
Um, what is your favorite example of evolution to use for those who have a completely wrong concept of it to explain it for them? Hmm. So when I when I teach this in my classroom, when I, when I teach this in my classroom, I, I usually go to the transitional fossils of horses, whales, and birds, because those very clearly demonstrate it. Now, my students, I, I don't know what my students' opinions are. I don't ask them. I don't poll them. To be, I, I, don't, I don't measure my success as a teacher by polling my students and seeing how many of them don't believe in evolution at the beginning versus the end of the lesson. I don't even want to know what they believe in because I don't want to approach, I don't want to have any uh, bias about it. Because if, if I was biased, then I would be the last one who even knows. So I wouldn't even know that I'm teaching in a biased way. Um, so I don't even want to know what they believe in. Um, I, I just assume that they don't know anything, right? So those are my favorite examples to teach it. Now, when I'm talking to people on TikTok, they're upfront that they don't believe this, right? So um, I have tried to use those examples, but it's really hard to use like pictures and graphics on TikTok. It's not impossible. I've done it. Um, um, it's just kind of difficult. It typically doesn't get to that point. But actually, I do have this wonderful slide where I have a whole bunch of skulls of different hominids. So that's actually, I guess, now that I think about it, that's the one I use for TikTok. And it's created some insanely comical moments where, you know, I'll ask somebody ahead of time, if we had evidence that humans evolved, what would that evidence look like? And then, you know, I've had one person describe like, well, you would see like changes in the form going back, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll pull up that picture. I'm like, and what do we have here? And they'll just say like, it's just a bunch of skulls. You don't know that we're related to them or anything. <laughs> it's like, uh, like, you know what? Actually, you're right. Um, it's not, this is something we didn't talk about, but like the idea of like proof, when people say like, prove it, they're asking for absolute proof, which we will never have. But it, what science does is it deals in evidence to construct the best explanation, right? So I'll be like, I, I agree, but you said this is what the evidence would look like. And we have that evidence. Um, again, co very comical moments. You can you can do a deep dive on my TikTok and see those videos. I have a playlist of evolution debates. I, there are several people who I've pulled up the the skulls and they've just kind of lost it. <laughs> we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but I think my favorite video that you have, or one of my favorite videos, um, is one where you're talking to, I think it's it's a woman and she's, what was she trying to say? I couldn't, honestly, couldn't make sense of what they were trying to express. But you start to walk away and go on a, on a swing set while they're rambling for two minutes. And they don't say anything. They don't realize you, you, you've even walked away. They don't say, like, where are you going? They just continue to ramble nonstop without any interruption. And yeah. I have no idea what they're saying. I've done that twice. She was, I'm pretty sure that guest, um, I think I put a clip of that in the word salad award video. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I'm not sure. No, actually I didn't. I ended up going with a different person, but she was trying to, for, a, there was a short period where I was getting a lot of woo. And if nobody knows what woo is, uh, if you know, look up Deepak Chopra, oh, Deepak, Deepak Chopra, Chopra. I don't remember how to say his name. 
sorry. Um, um, I'm just an ignorant white American, you know. Um, Wu is like the idea that you can explain physics and you can merge physics and consciousness together to describe the properties of the universe and, and all this crazy stuff. It's like, it's like astrology times a million. It's so, and so she was explaining what consciousness is and how it connects us to the universe. But it, it was literally just, it was like talking to a random word generator. Yeah, yeah, it's... Deepak Chopra, that's what my comment section is telling me. Thank you. Um, what was I going to say? Well, yeah, I think if nobody else has any other questions, um, I'm good to wrap it up. Um, but you I know, want to say... Something that, uh, well, what was I going to say? Um, somebody, I, I was looking at my comment section here, and somebody was talking about, like, um, pseudoscience, right? So, like, um, philo like, philosophically or whatever, what is science versus pseudoscience? And, like, the different, people call evolution, like, pseudoscience and the Big Bang pseudoscience. It doesn't, it really doesn't make any, any sense. Um, so, the prefix pseudo just, like, literally means fake. Um, so I don't know what they mean when they say that, um, a lot of them mean that the fossils don't exist or you can't, you can't prove anything based on the fossils. They're not evidence of anything or whatever, or like I said at the beginning uh, the evidence just simply doesn't exist, but pseudoscience is basically like confirmation bias, right? Pseudoscience is when you data mine for, uh, evidences that support your claim, right? And that's, that that's not what science is. And I, I guess we kind of talked about this already in science, you have your hypothesis and the scientist thinks it's true, but then they generate the data themselves. And then that data is, is analyzed and it's determined whether or not it's, it's false. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, look, I, I hope you come back. I'd love to, to have you on again at some point. Um, I, I have a, a close friend of mine who, who I know would like to discuss issues of language with you uh, because I think she, um, she sees language very differently, I think. And, and that would be an interesting conversation to have if you're uh, able to come back. I, I would have to do my homework uh, to, to prepare. I'd be, I'd be interested because it does fascinate me. So Steven Pinker is one of my favorite authors and he's a lingual psychologist. So he has a book on language called The Language Instinct. I've never read it, but it's kind of like on my, my to, to read, to, to read list. Yeah. It has been for years. I guess I'll just have to get around to it. Okay. Well, um, yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch and uh, let me know when you're available again. And we'll figure something out. Oh, for sure. So th yeah. thanks again for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, everybody, as always, for tuning in tonight. I hope you guys have a, have had a good holiday and a happy new year. It's coming up. So um, with that, I, I hope everybody has a good night and I'll be back soon with another episode of Accents and Trials. So uh, thank you. Oh, and I guess if you want to plug in your, your TikTok or anything like that. Oh yeah, sure. Um, it's just called Planet Peterson. Um, I have, I have two accounts. One has way more followers than the other. So it'll be pretty obvious. Um, but follow them both, I guess. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, nowadays, pretty much the only thing I do on YouTube is upload my my live debates on TikTok. So if you're not on TikTok, you don't care for that. You can still watch uh, 
ex like long clips of my debate typically my my youtube clips i mean the longest one i think is two and a half hours long shortest one is like five to 10 minutes or something like that but they're usually like in the 20 to 45 minute range gotcha perfect all right well yeah everybody go follow and uh, uh thanks again i'll be back soon so, good night thanks for listening and come back later for more content